Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, She Gave All That She Had, Finding Wisdom in the Lives of Three Widows. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November 8, 2009. The psalmist for this week offers some counterintuitive advice. Do not put your trust in princes, in mortal men who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Psalm 146, 3 and 4. Despite our culture's propagandistic promises to the contrary, wealth and political power cannot save. In fact, there's exactly one place in Scripture where God laughs. In Psalm 2, verse 4, when he scoffs at the pretensions of the powerful. The maker of heaven and earth, says Psalm 146, demonstrates his saving power in more subtle and less obvious ways. He's biased on behalf of the oppressed. He feeds the hungry frees prisoners, and heals the blind. He lifts up those who are weighted down, defends foreigners, protects the orphan, and sustains the widow. In this week's readings, three widows in particular play conspicuous roles in the coming of God's kingdom here on earth. The story of Ruth occurs during the time of the judges, perhaps the darkest period in Israel's history. Famine ravaged the land. Anarchy reigned, and every person did what was right in his own eyes. Whereas idolatry was common, 1 Samuel 3.1 says that the word of the Lord was rare. On the moral level, it was a time of debauchery. Judges 19, for example, records the murder of a nameless woman who was gang-raped all night and then dismembered. It was a crime so heinous that it provoked a civil war in Israel. In fact, the story of Ruth is the story of three widows. The Israelite Naomi, who fled Israel to Moab to escape famine, and her two foreign daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. After 10 years in Moab, and despite Naomi's protests, Ruth returned with her back to Israel. Back in Bethlehem, Ruth was now the foreigner from an enemy country. She was childless and widowed from a mixed marriage. But she vowed to cling to Naomi, her Hebrew people, and to their God. Ruth secured an economic livelihood for her mother-in-law by gleaning the fields among the hired hands. She followed Naomi's plan to ingratiate herself to Boaz, the owner of the fields that she gleaned. And we read in Ruth 3.11 that all Bethlehem knew that this foreign woman was, quote, a woman of excellence. Boaz was both a wealthy man and a near relative to Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech. 
As such, he not only had the means, but also the obligation to redeem Ruth, and of course, in the process, Naomi. Another relative was closer to Naomi than Boaz, but when he refused to redeem Ruth, he cleared the way. And so this second mixed marriage conceived a son, Obed, the grandfather of King David. Ruth's improbable story culminates when we meet her again on the very first page of the New Testament as a forebear of Christ himself. Matthew 1, verse 5. Like Ruth, we encounter the widow Zarephath at a pivotal juncture in Israel's history. And then we meet her again in the New Testament. In his book, The Kings and Their Gods, Daniel Berrigan interprets 1st and 2nd Kings as self-serving imperial records that portray Israel's kings as they saw themselves and as they wanted others to see them. That is, God favors my regime and hates my enemies. He blesses us with their treasure. No war crime is too heinous as a means to the delusional ends of these kings. And so on page after page, political hell descends to earth. There's one political end in the book of Kings, says Berrigan, extra imperium nola salus. Outside the empire, there's no salvation. The kings employ many pathological means to this end. Imperial ego, political retaliation, military might, revisionist history, manipulation of memory, grandiose building projects, economic exploitation, virulent nationalism, and sanctioning it all with divine approval, legitimation by religious psychophants. A few dissenting voices objected to this imperial power, but they were silenced as unpatriotic and seditious. The prophet Elijah was one such exception. Elijah was a lonely prophet, alternately manic and reclusive. He faced down the political powers of his day. Elijah arrives on the scene in 1 Kings 17. His story begins with a foreign widow from Zarephath in Sidon, who a great personal sacrifice cares for him during a severe drought, and who in turn is cared for by Elijah. This narrative of a nameless alien widow in a Hebrew prophet offering each other mutual care across nationalistic boundaries, assume such central importance in Israel's sacred storytelling that Jesus repeated it a thousand years later. The impact was the same. The listeners were outraged at the role reversals. We read in Luke chapter 4, 25 to 28, Jesus says, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them 
but sent to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. When all the people in the synagogue heard this, they were furious. The third widow in this week's reading also epitomizes the reversals and subversions of power in God's kingdom. Women in general played a prominent role in the ministry of Jesus. Luke says that many women traveled with Jesus and supported him from their private means, Luke 8, 1-3. Widows in particular occupy a major role in this story. The Greek word for widow, chera, occurs about 25 times in the New Testament. That God cares for widows and that his people should care for them too are prominent themes throughout the Bible. In this third story, though, it's the nameless widow who exemplifies the extravagant benefactor instead of the vulnerable beneficiary. At the temple, Jesus observed many rich people making large donations. In stark contrast, a poor widow's gift amounted to only a fraction of a penny. But whereas the rich gave out of the convenience of their surplus, said Jesus, this poor widow has given more than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. Mark 12, 38-44 In the parlance of poker, this woman was all in when it came to following Jesus. Many of the earliest Christians came from the lower socioeconomic classes of Rome. The harsh critic Celsus, for example, who flourished around the year 175, combined socioeconomic snobbery with intellectual elitism. Listen to Celsus. In some private homes, we find people who work with wool and rags and cobblers, that is, the least cultured and most ignorant kind. Before the head of the household, they dare not utter a word. But as soon as they can take the children aside, where some women who are as ignorant as they are, they speak wonders. If you really wish to know the truth, leave your teachers and your father and go with the women and children to the women's quarters, or to the cobbler's shop, or to the tannery, and there you will learn the perfect life. It is thus that these Christians find those who will believe them. We normally don't turn to widows for wisdom, but what Celsus considered a criticism was for the Apostle Paul an insight about living in the kingdom of God. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. 1 Corinthians 1, 
For books this week, I review Eric Ries, An American Gospel, on family, history, and the kingdom of God. New York, Riverhead Books, 2009, 224 pages. Eric Reese's grandfather and father were both Baptist preachers. But when his church burned to the ground the summer after he graduated from high school, he had had enough of compulsory fundamentalist faith. But extracting himself from family faith and exercising his demons proved difficult. His father's suicide at the age of 33, when Reese was only three, had medical roots, he admits but it was bag badly aggravated by the acute self-loathing, life-negating principles, oppressive faith, and repressive morality of his fundamentalist heritage. And so when Eric Reese himself experienced something like a nervous breakdown at the same age of 33, he headed for a Buddhist monastery to purge his demons. Reese interprets his personal experience as a tragic disconnect between Christianity that was a ticket to escape this evil world for the glories of heaven and a lived faith that believes the kingdom of God is within you here and now. This is not an uncommon experience. His memoir offers what he calls a radical revision or an alternate apocryphal canon that I call the American Gospel. He begins with stereotypes about world-denying Puritans and contrasts them with the life-affirming, healthy-minded religion of William James, and in particular with what he calls a nearly forgotten Virginian named William Byrd. He admits that Byrd was a womanizing rake who loved his liquor but in this telling, Byrd was kind to the Native Americans and had what he calls an anti-Puritan reverence for wilderness. Next comes Thomas Jefferson. There's passing mention of Jefferson's slaves, his aristocratic tastes, and Sally Hemings. But for Reese, Jefferson is the quintessential agrarian in contrast to the financial industrialist Alexander Hamilton. Reese found a faith he could believe in the Gospel of Thomas, which he contends is a more authentic version of Jesus, the purest form of the faith, and a profound corrective to mainstream Christianity. Remarkably, he finds direct parallels between this ancient Thomas and Thomas Jefferson. And in his final chapter, he appeals to the wisdom of Walt Whitman, who wrote, Quote, what do you suppose I would intimate to you in a hundred ways, but that man or woman is as good as God, and that there is no God any more divine than yourself, and that this is what the oldest and newest myths finally mean? I don't doubt for a moment that Eric Ries is, is in a far better space and place than he was with his fundamentalist heritage. Nor I do, do I deny elements of truth in the stereotypes that he employs. 
But problems arise when he connects his personal experience with a highly selective reading of the trajectory of the gospel in American history. The tip-off is especially apparent when he argues that, quote-unquote, most scholars agree, end quote, that the infancy narratives in Matthew and Luke are pure myth, that dating the gospel of Thomas is a simple matter, or that Thomas Jefferson's scissored-down Jesus is much more than a mild moralizer. Along the way, Christianity is implicated for its complicity with industrialism, consumerism, and corporatism. Another simple stereotype with elements of truth, but one which also neglects a long and deep history of alternate voices. All of which is to say that this book makes for a memoir full of good points, many of which are badly made. The author is Eric Reese, an American gospel on family, history, and the kingdom of God. For film this week, I review a film from Rwanda. The title is Munyu Rengabo. Ngabo, a Tutsi, and Sangwa, a Hutu, are hands-down best friends in the large anonymous city of Kigali. But theirs is a friendship that will be tested. The film begins on an ominous note when Ngabo steals a machete from the marketplace and the two set off for Sangwa's rural village. There we experience the lush countryside, the soulful music, and the work rhythms of the countryside. We'll also, we're also introduced to the priority of family when Sangwa is shamed for deserting his family for three years and then welcomed back again. For his part, Ngabo has been orphaned by the genocide and so he no longer enjoys such family bonds. In addition, Sangwa's father is openly unhappy about his friendship with a Tutsi. Sangwa is hesitant about the true nature of their journey, which in fact is a revenge killing of a Hutu who killed his own father. In the end, a young village poet is given the last word that the road to genuine liberation from ethnic hatred misogynist mores, grinding poverty, and AIDS is long and slow. This interesting film is in Kenya Rwandan with English subtitles. Once again the title Munyu Rangabo, a 2009 film from Rwanda. And finally this week, for poetry, we've posted a poem by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Browning lived from 1806 to 1861. The title, Work and Contemplation. The woman singeth at her spinning wheel a pleasant chant, ballad or barra carol. She thinketh of her song upon the whole, 
far more than of her flax. And yet the reel is full, and artfully her fingers feel, with quick adjustment, provident control. The lines, too subtly twisted to unroll, out to a perfect thread. I hence appeal to the dear Christian church, that we may do our father's business in these temples murk, thus swift and steadfast, thus intent and strong, while thus, apart from toil, our souls pursue some high, calm, spheric tune, and prove our work the better for the sweetness of our song. Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Work and Contemplation. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, November the 8th, 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.